Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 7th of September 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Derish. We're delighted to be joined by Mark Anderson from the United States. And uh, we have Debbie Evans, our very own nursing correspondent with us today. Uh, well, it's a day of celebration, of course, because uh, Liz Truss has uh, entered number 10 uh, and uh, there she is going in yesterday. Uh, wasn't that exciting? Uh, are you impressed? Uh, no, I'm not impressed. I think this is this lady's going to demonstrate that she's one of the most dangerous prime ministers we have had to date. That's my prediction. I may be wrong. OK, well, she uh, gave a little speech outside number 10. So let's just uh, listen to a short excerpt from that. As Prime Minister, I will pursue three early priorities. Firstly, I will get Britain working again. I have a bold plan to grow the economy through tax cuts and reform. We'll get spades in the ground to make sure people are not facing unaffordable energy bills. And we will also make sure that we are building hospitals, schools, roads and broadband. So my first thoughts on this, Brian, are well, how are we going to be building or why are we going to be building roads when we're stopping people driving as rapidly as we are? But how are we going to be building hospitals and schools uh, when, as we were reporting on Monday, uh, still steel mills are, are closing due to the energy crisis, according to this headline? Uh, and uh, well, we're going to come on to it a little bit later, but uh, uh, more and more companies uh, within insolvency reach. Yeah, she, uh, she doesn't understand this. I'm convinced that at the moment she does not understand what the world economic situation is. She thinks she understands it, but she doesn't. Well, I'm, I'm, well, okay, we'll come on to that. Uh, let's let's get another little clip here. Secondly, I will deal hands-on with the energy crisis caused by Putin's war. I will take action this week to deal with energy bills and to secure our future energy supply. So she's going to secure our future energy supply, but it's Putin's uh, fault. It's all Putin's fault, of course. Uh, but then later on, she said uh, this, uh, we have huge reserves of talent, energy and determination. And I was thinking, well, if we've got huge reserves of energy, then what's the problem? But anyway, uh, anyway, uh, Hugh Pill was uh, speaking in uh, to the Treasury Select Committee this morning. He's, of course, is the chief economist of the Bank of England. Uh, he had this to say. Now, one of the things that does seem to be under consideration is a change to the relationship between gas prices and retail gas prices in a direction that will lower headline inflation uh, relative to what we're forecasting. So what was he talking about? Well, Liz is apparently uh, about to announce uh, that she's going to put a uh, price cap on uh, a proper price cap on the cost of energy. Um, but uh, if we just put that back on screen for a second, I just wanted to highlight the fact that what is he said headline inflation, and that's the key point, because what they're talking about is putting a price cap on uh, on what uh, consumers pay for energy. But of course, that doesn't do anything to change the actual price uh, that energy is costing. So the government is going to have to make up the difference. So it's only the headline inflation figure which is going to change. So let's put up the uh, graph that we put on a couple of days ago, showing the, the forecast for energy price cap uh, in the UK. Uh, and as you can see, in October, it will rise to £3,550 from £1,971 for the average household per year. That's what they'll have to pay on gas and electricity. Um, well, she is apparently about to announce that that cap will reduce to 
500 pounds. Actually, that's a misprint there, so apologies for that. So uh, she's going to take that down to 2,500 pounds. Um, so if we put the original graph back on screen again and draw the 2,500 pound line on there, um, what she's effectively saying is that the British government is going to pay the difference, pay everything that's on the right-hand side of that line to the energy companies because their priority is to make sure that these energy companies don't go out of business. Um, and so they're going to pay all that money. Uh, the forecasts are that that's going to cost something in the region of 100 to 150 billion pounds, depending on how long that process takes. So she may, uh, you know, what she's basically doing is hoping that the price of energy comes down uh, in the meantime and that they can stop paying this money by April 23 or by July 23. But of course, that isn't going to happen. So uh, we're at, the, the British government, therefore, is going to borrow huge amounts of money. Uh, new money into the economy to try to, to cover these costs and make sure that people uh, aren't uh, uh, going personally bankrupt and so on. Uh, but this is not going to do anything for inflation except for potentially headline inflation. In fact, it'll be quite the opposite because it's uh, even more money. So let's bring Andrew Bailey. He was also speaking to the Treasury Select Committee this morning. Uh, it's not for us to comment on what fiscal policy will be and we will wait and see what it is. So uh, he... Uh, uh, isn't sure what this, what effect any of this uh, change is going to have on, for example, interest rates and uh, and mortgage rates. They may try to justify uh, even bringing interest rates back down again, based on this headline inflation figure, which is completely fake. Um, so uh, yes, interesting times ahead. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, go on to the final little clip from uh, Liz here and see what she had to say. Oh, just before we do that, actually. Um, this comment about building hospitals and whatnot, she didn't say anything about staff. So I'm quite sure, uh, you know, maybe they'll manage to build some hospitals or whatever, but I'm not quite clear how they're going to staff them. Well, well, I think a figure of 50,000 extra staff has been uh, mentioned. I don't know whether Debbie can correct or add to this or correct me, but I, th I think these are all coming from overseas is the impression I get. Debbie? Yeah, yeah, you're correct. Um, but um, my my thoughts are that we won't need staff in hospitals. Uh, the hospitals have almost become already secure units. And, and I will talk about that maybe later or in extra. But, you know, hospitals won't need staff. They'll all be automated. So uh, and, and we know that a lot of the hospitals are being financed by pharma companies and cancer research. And we're having a new cancer research hospital in, in Cambridge. So much of this is going to be remote. Yes. yes. A transformation is the term they're using, and we'll show you a bit of what's uh, what they're planning a little bit later in this news edition. Well, let's, let's just listen to this uh, final 10-second clip here. Thirdly, I will make sure that people can get doctor's appointments and the NHS services they need. We will put our health service on a firm footing. And uh, the only thing I can say to that is, yeah, right. Well, yeah, I think we're going to discover a little bit more about mistrust in, uh, in a minute. But uh, let's just remind ourselves of um, how Boris left. And uh, this Guardian picture I just found extraordinary. I don't know what the uh, message that was supposed to be given to the public was, but the lady in the see-through red dress, was this appropriate dress for the outgoing prime minister or was this some sort of message? Uh, I think the interesting thing about it is we finally got to the stage. Well, it's the Empress with no clothes, but I think really it's Boris with no clothes. Um, betrayed 
His family really betrayed the country. Uh, he's leaving amidst cheers and claps. Uh, but let, let's listen to a little bit of the speech that he made as he departed. It's very interesting. Above all, thanks to you, the British people, to the voters for giving me the chance to serve. All of you who worked so tirelessly together to beat COVID, to put us where we are today. Together, we have laid foundations that will stand the test of time, whether by taking back control of our laws or putting in vital new infrastructure. Great, solid masonry on which we will continue to build together. Paving, paving the path of prosperity now and for future generations. And I will be supporting Liz Truss and the new government every step of the way. Thank you all very much. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Well, all, all about building and masonry, apparently, and uh, bringing in our laws. I don't think those are anything to do with laws which are going to help the people of, of this country. So what was Boris really trying to, what message was he really conveying to the audience in talking about uh, the foundations and good masonry? Uh, I don't know. But uh, we'll bring in the incoming empress uh, because she was fascinated in, in the green dress uh, with a little chain apron. And uh, this was clearly being uh, pushed at the uh, general audience. So um, what is the governing elite in uh, in the UK and who do they work for? Well, we're not too sure, but we thought we'd just like to remind our audience of uh, Boris Johnson's interest with the Palmyra Arch of Triumph, which was uh, recreated in London back in uh, 2016 when he was mayor. Um, and of course, this has some really dark and devious connotations, but my goodness, was he excited about it. So we'll just leave you with those thoughts as to who's really controlling the country. Um, so let's look at uh, the uh, range of puppets that we've got and key roles in the cabinet. So uh, Kwasi Kwartang MP is uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, I wonder what uh, qualifications he's got. Well, he's got a PhD in British history from Cambridge. He worked as an analyst uh, for a short time at J.P. Morgan Chase uh, and then in journalism before he went into politics. So maybe that gives him enough. Uh, James Cleverly there uh, on the right hand side, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. Uh, he's got a degree in hospitality management, uh, Brian. So, well, I mean, if you're foreign, if you're foreign minister, foreign secretary of state for foreign affairs, clearly you're mainly uh, running hospitality events as you uh, execute your soft power, perhaps. Maybe that qualifies him for that. Uh, he was education secretary since July, and then he was a, a junior minister in the foreign office. Uh, and then we've got uh, Swella Braverman here. She's secretary of state for the home office. Uh, and uh, well, what's her background? Uh, uh, well, not barrister. Yes, sorry. Oh, well, still that, reading that she's a barrister, so that should be good so, enough for that. So she'll she'll be struggling with the pay. Yes, in the background uh, for that. Brandon Lewis. Uh, he's another qualified barrister. Uh, so maybe he's appropriate for Secretary of State for Justice. Ben Wallace and James Heapy. Well, they have stayed in post uh, because, of course, they're prosecuting a war at the moment. So it's fair enough that they stay there, right? Uh, but you'll notice that James Heapy has also uh, taken on the role of uh, Minister for Veterans uh, because, uh, uh, and his name rapidly, jo uh, Johnny, Johnny Mercer, Mercer, thank you, yeah. uh, our Plymouth MP here, uh, has been sacked from that role. Uh, and then Theresa Coffey, uh, Therese Coffey, uh, she is Secretary of State for Health. Um, and, uh, well, she worked for Mars at one point uh, and 
as in finance as a finance manager and also uh, as a BBC as a finance manager as well. So, so clearly uh, working for the BBC, she's used to running big budgets, which maybe puts makes it uh, appropriate that she's become health minister. But uh, and then uh, the the other key one here that I wanted to highlight was Michelle Donnellan, uh, who nobody will have heard of. But she's become Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and will therefore be responsible for pushing the uh, online safety bill through. Um, and what's her qualifications for that? Well, she, before she entered politics, was in marketing, uh, including working for Marie Claire magazine and the World Wrestling Entertainment Series, so WWE. So that's great. Uh, now, as for uh, Liz, what were the, who was the first person I would, can we guess who the first person was? Uh, that uh, Liz called uh, when she became... Well, I, I have a bit of an advantage, but I'm going to say vote, uh, vote Ms. Trust, get Zelensky. Yes, indeed. So uh, apparently the phone call went like this. Uh, hello, Vladimir, uh, you were first on my list. Uh, and indeed he was. Uh, but uh, it's quickly followed by Joe. Uh, so she phoned Joe uh, straight after. She said, uh, hello, Joe, loved your speech. Uh, of course, talking about the, the speech that we were talking about on Monday's programme. Uh, we have a special relationship. Let's build that global military. So she was uh, talking about NATO and AUKUS and how the UK and the US could better uh, push those uh, those forward. And you've suggested that AUKUS perhaps uh, is, uh, in fact, part of uh, global NATO as is coming. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that this is what's being built, Mike. Um, but I, I couldn't resist this one. I've been a bit naughty because she was wearing dark blue, not black. But here's the mail with the headline, Liz shows no mercy. I think this, this headline is absolutely right. This lady is, is capable of doing all sorts of things which are going to horrify the nation. Liz Trust culls every Rishi Sunak supporter from cabinet, but now she faces the prospect of mauling from backbench big beast. This is all terrible language by the mail, um, but uh, my take on it is, well, the elderly have been uh, culled in this country. And uh, so to use the word cull in relation to politics in Westminster, absolutely spot on by the mail. And um, this lady uh, you've just shown, Theresa Coffey, Mike, uh, inherits the NHS in crisis. No, 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 the NHS is not in crisis. It's being transformed. Debbie, you've been following this lady for a little bit of uh, time. Uh, what are your thoughts? Is the NHS in safe hands? No. Um, I just want to, I'm just going to fire off a few little bullet points about not Miss or Right Honourable Theresa Coffey, but Dr. Theresa Coffey. Yes, she's a doctor. And even better, we've now got a pharmacist, a chemist running the NHS. So she, she received a, a PhD from Somerville. Oh, Somerville College. That was same place as June Rain. And oh, Margaret Thatcher as well, who also had a PhD in chemistry. So Theresa Coffey has a PhD in chemistry. She likes a cigar um, and she admits she's self-declared overweight and she's a smoker and she says she's not a role model. She's going to leave that to other people. Um, she's a football fan. She, she called for the um, knighthood for Kenny Dalgleish, I believe. Um, and she's also a big karaoke fan. So time of my life, um, you can see it on YouTube. She's very, uh, she's got good rhythm. Uh, she's also goes without sleep. 
So she is questioning data apparently all the time. So as health secretary, I am really going to be very keen to ask her to question the MHRA's data because apparently she really scrutinizes it. She rips up things and she, she does her own thing. She's Liz Truss's best mate. Uh, they've been best friends for ages. Um, and she's got an emergency plan. So she's gonna roll out an emergency plan for the NHS next week. And this is going to be the mantra, folks. It's going to be, and you're going to hear it loads of times, four word phrase, ambulances, ABCD. That's what she's calling it, ABCD. So we're talking ambulances, backlog, care, doctors and dentistry. So what she's going to do is she's going to incentivize doctors to stay in the NHS by offering them some pension tax breaks. So we've got all of that to come. And of course, let's not forget that the DWP, which is where she's come from, that was at the center of Drinksgate, not Partygate, as in Boris, but I believe they had a few drinkies. And um, her history, you know, she has been questioned a number of times about different issues. So Teresa Frost is going, uh, Teresa, sorry, Coffee is going to be um, a very interesting person to follow, but basically we've got a pharmacist running the NHS. Do I feel confident? No. No. I, I'll just say, I believe that when you have friends at that level, they're known as besties. Okay, now the UK column has been warning and warning about the government's use of applied psychology. Just want to bring your minds back to the key cabinet office document, Mindspace of 2010. We've talked about it many times, but in case there's anybody that still hasn't gone to look at the information, and of course, David Halpern was the key man driving this policy forward, but he was also linked into a senior lecturer in psychology faculty of medicine at Imperial College. And uh, we just put up a little bit more detail on screen because of course, potential for controversy, that was actually recognized in the document and uh, the government was being a bit squeamish because what it effect was effectively saying was that if the public really understood what we're doing, we could be in for big trouble. Why? Because the government was boasting they could change people's behavior. Uh, that is the way they think and their behavior and people wouldn't know that was happening or if they realized something had changed in their lives, they wouldn't know how it was done. So imagine the politicians that we've just described being able to unleash this technology on the public mind. Well, some very um, interesting research pulled up this document, Think Peace, Risky Business, Nudging You to Make the Right Choices. And we've got some interesting names there, and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Truss and Nick Bosenkay. So this is interesting because it's in 2009, it's prior to the Cabinet Office's document. And what it demonstrates is that Liz Truss was hard at work bringing this type of political applied behavioral psychology into government in order to manipulate people's minds. So um, it's boasting here that she's previously worked for Shell Cable and Wireless and the communication group, as she was head of public affairs. And of course, she's read philosophy, politics, and ec economics at Oxford University. Um, but uh, let's have a look at the document here. Now, this is reform, which is a change, a transformation think tank linking in with uh, the uh, insurance people. So the introduction here, I'll read it very quickly. One of the top reads in Whitehall and Westminster last year was the book by Richard Taylor, 
and Cass Sunstein that describe using behavioral economics to nudge customers towards making better choices on complex subjects. However, the idea of subtly of shaping the right choices has been a key element of insurance long before nudge theory or even many of the preceding behavioral economics theories. Nevertheless, nudge theory benefits both the insurer and the insured. So it goes on and it says that the think tank reform provides an alternative perspective on nudge theory, exploring its potential rewards as well as uh, risk. So you really need to uh, get hold of this document or freeze this page to read the detail here. But I've just chosen a bit of it to give you an idea of what happens. It says the choice architect at the heart of the thinking in Nudge is the idea of allowing a choice architect to help guard against some unforeseen risk or uninsured against eventualities. The choice architect is someone who sets the parameters for a decision. For example, laying out the vegetables in greengrocers or designing the welfare system. The authors of Nudge believe it's possible for the government to hire a competent expert to design a choice environment in, in which individuals have a easier time making good decisions. Ah, this, uh, I presume by the fact that they're only given limited choices in the first place. Absolutely. The government selects the choices that you will be given so that you make the right decision. Mm. This is, uh, is uh, it's mind blowing, really. So here's some of the uh, bullet points in their summary. There are many cases where poor information or human psychology can impede effective decision making. So the government is going to help you because you're just a poor person. You need Liz, uh, you need Liz Trust to make the decisions. And by you. effective decision making, they mean the decision that they want. They want, yeah. absolutely. Nudge theory is a potential solution to some of the problems identified. And then it goes on to the book. So uh, these two, Thaler and Sunstein, have become the gurus and they were working at, at the heart of the British government at one stage. At the heart of thinking in Nudge is the idea of allowing the choice architect. Well, we've covered that. And if we go on, a more nudged world with the government leading its citizens more and more towards particular uniform behaviours begins to look like one with a more technocratic managerial state. So we are all being herded so that we're only going to think what the government tells us. And then the insurance company boasts that it's already demonstrating that nudging can work because insurers are now offering products whose premium are linked to what they see in the psychology of people in their everyday lives. And finally, the key to nudge working in society's best interest is openness and transparency. But this, of course, is the great lie because the government has consistently hidden its nudge efforts. So two um, key paragraphs here. The concept of nudging people into the right behavior rather than being compelled appeals to those on both the right and left of the political spectrum as it is superficially non-intrusive and positive in outcome. Superficially. Yes. Okay. And uh, the problem with risk. If enough difficult contingencies are imagined, it can have the effect of making the risk seem exceedingly dangerous, even though this does not represent their likelihood of occurring. And of course, what are we seeing in this, cent in this paragraph from 2009? We are seeing what they did as part of the SPY-B 
uh, team around COVID when their own minutes showed that they were going to use aggressive nudges to make people fearful in order that people obeyed the government's lockdown and social distancing. So political psychological nudging using fear and anxiety to lock people in their homes. Uh, here's reform that this is the organization that she was working in. Very difficult to find out who they really are. You can see people, but who controls them? Who's controlling the money? You did some uh, research, Mike. And uh, well, then it gets very interesting because the transformation think tank is driven by. Well, well, first of all, that's that's their sponsorship for 2021. And it looks like a very small amount of money. So so that's a bit fishy for a start. But in, in, the, in the text that goes with this, it says we're sponsored by the usual tax exempt foundations and so on. But that's that's the that's the list. Uh, this is their transparent list for sponsorship. So we've got Amazon there and twenty four and a half thousand. BBC, Deloitte, Fujitsu, Imperial College, uh, KPMG, uh, Microsoft, MSD, Sanofi, uh, Tortoise. That's a very small amount of money, £500 from Tortoise, uh, hardly surprising. But then we come on to their corporate uh, sponsors, uh, partner organisations. And who do we have? We've got Pfizer, Moderna, and we've got uh, uh, BT and Fujitsu and so on. But Pfizer and Moderna certainly jump out. And then if we look at their uh, more academic partners, uh, we have the usual suspects of Imperial College uh, and so on. So we've got Imperial College, the Forum, uh, we've got King's College London, we've got Manchester uh, College, and uh, we've got University of Manchester University, sorry, University of York. So, so uh, what do we make of that? Well, uh, we, we've got all of these commercial interests and very powerful commercial interests running the think tank to transform government and society as they want. This is, if we want to talk democracy, which the government likes to talk about, this is nothing about democracy. This is about lobbying on a massive scale by global corporate interests operating through reform. Uh, we can't say these people were supporting reform in 2009 because we don't yet know, but it's interesting that we could possibly have a a prime minister groomed by these very interests to use applied psychology to help build their businesses? Or are we missing something? Don't think so. I don't think so. So um, if we come to reform in the present day, <clears throat> here's the, um, is she the director or the editor? Need some glasses, director, and uh, Charlotte Pickles. Now you can read her uh, CV, but what caught my eye at the bottom was she said, I'm privileged to be a member of the Social Security Advisory Committee and the NHS Assembly. Well, many people will have no idea what the NHS Assembly is. So pop it on screen. The Assembly brings together a range of individuals from across the health and care sectors at regular intervals to advise the joint boards of NHS England and NHS Improvement on delivery of the NHS long-term plan. So um, we've got a lobbying group sitting in bed with major changes to the uh, uh, NHS. And uh, they're talking here about a guiding coalition. The assembly membership brings broad stakeholder insight and frontline experience to discuss, serve to discussions serving as a guiding coalition. So the guiding coalition, I'm gonna say acts as the body to nudge what people should think and do. 
And uh, the insurance body that uh, was involved right in the, the document right at the beginning of this segment, Chartered Insurance Institute, why are they interested in nudging? Well, uh, the uh, medical healthcare market, um, sorry, this is back in 2018, I believe, is 214.4 billion pounds. So if you can get in there and nudge, you are going to make a fortune at the end of the day. And um, well, that, that takes us on then. Too. Yeah. I just wanted to, to move on to sort of COVID related issues here. Uh, and so if we put this one up, uh, this is a, a new paper in uh, Nature Medicine, and it's entitled Long Term Cardiac Pathology in Individuals with Mild Initial COVID-19 Illness. Um, and what they seem to be suggesting is that uh, uh, people that have even had mild COVID-19 illness uh, then go on to suffer longer term cardiac problems. And you do wonder whether this is something to do with providing a narrative counter to the effect of the vaccine, because uh, this has been peer reviewed, by the way. Uh, and you've got to ask why it ended up with uh, peer review. But before we get to that, in summary, they say the present cohort of individuals with mild initial COVID-19 illness, cardiac symptoms were related to subclinical inflammatory cardiac involvement, which may at least in part explain uh, the psychopathology background of persistent cardiac symptoms. And then they end by, up by saying further research to establish long-term outcome uh, in the, in the uh, context of post-COVID. So they're not quite, uh, they're not saying that this is definitive in any way. They're saying further research is required. But this is the reason why we've got a question why this ended up getting peer review status. Uh, because if we read uh, through this, they say the effect of vaccination was not systemically assessed. In total, 144 participants, uh, I think there were about 350 participants altogether, 144 participants received mRNA vaccination between the baseline and the follow-up scan. We performed separate analyses for participants with vaccination as well as for participants without vaccination. Uh, the results were not different from the findings in the full cohort as presented. The cardiac effects of vaccination require further research. So they've at least acknowledged that. But the point here is 144, I think it was roughly about 40%, uh, had been vaccinated between the beginning of this whole uh, uh, experiment and the follow-up scan. So that's a pretty significant uh, uh, part, it's a, it's a pretty significant proportion. Um, but the point is they also don't mention how many uh, were vaccinated before the, the program began and they don't, uh, uh, and so the question is then, uh, is there a likelihood or a possibility that even more of the people involved were vaccinated? So it's, Im it's impossible to prove, therefore, that there was any connection to COVID-19 in terms of the effect on, on heart because they may have, uh, it may have been purely an effect of the vaccination. They can't say either way, it seems to me. So, uh, and then I believe that a number of the authors of this uh, paper were also funded uh, via Bayer, who are involved in vaccine production as well. So, so it's, it's a bit of a, uh, a I suggest, uh, a paper designed to sort of produce muddy a, a the narrative, waters. muddy the waters and produce yeah. a narrative over the source of, of heart conditions related to COVID. Um, I, I'm just watching Debbie's face on this one because Debbie, uh, I wonder whether you are thinking, well, of course, they don't know who's been damaged by the vaccines because there's no there's no risk uh, assessment into their own vaccine adverse effect data, as we keep saying. Exactly. And those that are 
suffering adverse reactions are being ignored. I mean, that study there is completely flawed for so many for so many reasons. But one of the reasons is, uh, again, you know, we've got we've got medicines like molnupiravir that have been tested on only um, unvaccinated people, not vaccinated people. But it takes you back to the definition of what is now regarded as vaccinated. Is fully vaccinated two jabs? Is it the third booster? Is it the fourth? We don't have a definition anymore of what I mean, we know that we're not talking about a vaccine and it's a gene technology, but you know, we have no definition for what is regarded anymore as vaccinated. So the whole yep. study's flawed. It, indeed, absolutely. Uh, and Mark, uh, let's say hello to you. And uh, with this British Medical Journal article here, uh, time to assume that health research is fraudulent until proven otherwise. Yeah, I came across this almost randomly a couple days ago, and it's from July of 2021. I want to say that right up front. But what this article is saying in the general term, in the general sense, is that going back about 40 years, hear that, 40 years, the authors of this article and those in the know have determined that a lot of peer-reviewed research about clinical trials in various journals is flawed, sometimes extremely flawed, and get this, drum roll please, sometimes based on trials that apparently never happened and talk about evidence, and granted, we could research this a little more, but sufficient for now, it, it's sufficient evidence that, that the peer-reviewed journals that we often see around the world, different places around the world, uh, and different publishers are inherently untrustworthy. And it says here in this article, which is written by the, the uh, British Medical Journal editor, Richard Smith, health research is based on trust. This is the beginning of the article. Health professionals and journal editors reading the results of a clinical trial assume that the trial happened and that the results were honestly reported. But about 20% of the time, according to Ben Moll, M-O-L, professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Monash Health, that would be wrong. As he described in a webinar last week, Ian Roberts, professor of epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, began to have doubts about the honest reporting of trials after a colleague asked if he knew that his, that his systemic review about head injuries was based on trials that had never happened. He, uh, Ian Roberts did not know that, but he set about investigating and he found that in fact, they had not happened. And it goes on to say later, Roberts, who headed one of the Cochrane groups, which is the Cochrane Collaboration, did a systemic review of colloids versus crystalloids, only, discovered, only to discover that many of the trials that were included in the review could not be trusted. He is now skeptical about all systemic reviews, particularly those that are mostly reviews of multiple small trials. Mr. Mole, like Mr. Roberts, has conducted systemic, systematic reviews, excuse me, only to realize that most of the trials included either were zombie trials that were fatally flawed or were untrustworthy. And it goes on to give some statistics. Uh, an, anesthesi an anesthesiologist, uh, John Carlisle, analyzed 526 trials submitted to the journal Anesthesia and found that 73 or 14% had false data and 43 or 8% he categorized as, quote, zombie. 
when he was able to examine individual patient data in, in 153 studies, 67 or 44% had untrustworthy data and 40 or 26% were zombie trials. Um, it goes on to say many things. Um, Oh, there's there's different parts I could cite. I don't want to go too much into it. And at any rate, Roberts and others wrote about the problem of the many untrustworthy and zombie trials in the British Medical Journal six years ago. By now, that would be seven years ago, under the provocative title, the knowledge system underpinning healthcare is not fit for purpose and must change. Get that. Very interesting. And it says here. Retractions are the easiest to deal with, but they are, as Mr. Mole said, only a tiny fraction of untrustworthy or zombie studies. And in other words, many are not retracted. An editorial in the Cochrane or Cochrane Library accompanying the new guidelines recognizes that there is no agreement on what constitutes an untrustworthy study. Screening tools are not reliable and misclassification could also lead to reputational damage, reputation, you know, the reputations of the authors being damaged, lead to legal consequences, ethical issues, and so on. Yeah. And here's the key part. Research fraud is often viewed as a problem of bad apples, but Barbara K. Redmond, who spoke at a recent web, reasonably recent webinar, insists that it is not a problem of bad apples, but bad barrels, if not, Rotten forests or rotten orchards. Yeah. Uh, so Mark, that if, pretty if much I can just sums up the fundamental problem going back decades. Okay, Mark, sorry, just to interject, some, somebody's made a comment in, in our um, on screen chat box saying that um, Dolores Carhill is on record as pointing out that it's only uh, a criminal offense in Germany to uh, falsify. Um, these sorts of uh, trials and experimentation. Now, if that's correct, that's, that's, that is incredible that you can falsify data or not even have the trial uh, in order to uh, help market your product, and that's not a crime. Yes. Okay, Mark, let's uh, very briefly move on to uh, onto this from republicbroadcasting.org. Uh, the headline here is California Bill Targets Family Doctors Who Spread Vaccine Disinformation. Now, we've seen uh, this type of thing uh, not in legislation in the UK, but we've certainly seen doctors that have spoken out uh, in the UK attacked in this way. Uh, so w give us a lowdown on this. Well, I, I'll cite this article and one by Reason magazine. Uh, the bill, there's a typo in that. It's not Assembly Bill 20098, it's Assembly Bill 2098. Uh, it passed the California legislature in latter August and it designates the dissemination of misinformation or disinformation as defined by the state relating to COVID-19 as unprofessional conduct for doctors. The text of the bill explains that its aim is to prevent doctors from giving patients information that contradicts the contemporary scientific consensus. And it says here, if Governor Gavin Newsom, I call him Gruesome Newsom, of course, the Democrat, if he signs the bill, and I would think he would, Doctors who violate these tenets could lose their licenses. And of course, this goes right up against the Griner versus Biden um, lawsuit that I cited in a recent article about the Red Pill Conference, where a, um, a plastic surgeon in Utah, Devin Griner, is trying to avoid that very thing with a lawsuit. 
to prevent from losing his license for, you know, taking things a different direction regarding COVID. So what the most important part to point out about this, guys, is that it never says in any, any of the articles I've read so far that they'll investigate what these contrarian doctors say, giving their patients alternative advice, alternative treatments. It never says they'll investigate what they're doing to see whether it's correct. The only criteria right now, criterion, actually singular, the only criterion is that do are the doctors, are the gadfly or rebellious doctors contradicting the state narrative? If they're contradicting the state medical narrative, that's taken as a given that the doctors are wrong. In other words, the state can't be wrong. And yes. that's the ultimate totalitarian principle that no matter what the state does, no matter what it says, it can't be wrong because it's the state. Yeah. That's the scary part. The good part, real quick, is that many people feel the California bill, if passed, will not survive um, court challenges and court challenges may overturn it. Let's hope that's true. Yeah. OK. And uh, well, on Monday's program, we were talking about Joe Biden's uh, um, fantastic speech uh, in front of the red and black background. Uh, and of course, one of the points that he was or one of the areas that he was focusing in on was uh, was the issue of free and fair elections. Mark. Yeah, you know, this is the real turning point, the real crux here. Okay, so August 2021, I believe the dates were, the well-known pillow entrepreneur, there you see him right there, Mike Lindell, he paid for, get that, he paid for the entire conference in Springfield, Missouri, um, called Moment of Truth, bought everybody's food, got everybody together, including Trump people, Steve Bannon and others, and of course, Mike Lindell himself fits that category, and he put out a all points bulletin that everybody needs to go to their county officials. There's a little over 3,200 counties in the United States, 254 in Texas alone, 83 here in Michigan. Everybody needs to go to their counties and get what are called cast vote records. And evidently these are key records. And the article that's available uh, from American Free Press that we're seeing here explains what those are. But these cast vote records apparently could enable anyone to detect at least some evidence of election fraud. And of course, there was a major focus on Georgia. One of my main contacts, Garland Favrito of Voters Organized for Trusted Election Results in Georgia or VoterGA.org. He was there, he met the Trump people, one of my main contacts. And he gave the presentation where Georgia is shown to be among the states with the strongest evidence of massive election fraud. I've talked on this show before about hundreds of thousands of digital ballot images being missing, literally missing. And so this was a major coming together of all this data. And the call to arms was to get these cast vote records. And in fact, I went to my county, quick note here, I asked the clerk, Sharon Tyler, who I happen to know here in Michigan, Berrien County, for the cast vote records, and they claimed they didn't have them. But Garland told me that essentially there was no way they couldn't have them because they're embedded and integral in the election data that must be kept after a given election under federal law for at least 22 months. That federal law deadline for ballot retention and all the other election data, that deadline expired September 3rd, just a couple days ago. So I'm still gonna be calling more counties in Texas and Michigan to see if they have that data. But, the, but everything that was presented at that Missouri conference, much of it, if not all of it, showed extensive uh, election fraud proof and, and evidence throughout most of the states. And yet Joe Biden and his ilk 
are basing their whole narrative, a big New York Times editorial, all this, on the idea that election fraud is literally not even possible in any significant extent in the United States. I mean, that is an audaciously erroneous statement to make. And the whole narrative rests on that linchpin that we have to have an article of faith that elections are pretty much crystal clear in the United States. Participate, yes. Vote. Vote all you want, but don't look under the hood. That's the message. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Mark. Okay. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but uh, please do share uh, as much material as you find on the various platforms as far and wide as you can. Now, uh, a few days ago, uh, the LaRouche organization published this uh, Ukraine's deathless database. Uh, my, uh, this is the uh, Mirov uh website on Ukraine, which is basically listing people. It's effectively a hit list of people that are pushing out a uh, counter uh, Ukrainian narrative, apparently. And of course, they were uh, on that list quite extensively. Uh, this is just a, a, a look at that website. If you want to remember what it looks like, it's quite unpleasant. Now, tonight they will be holding, or this, this afternoon in the UK, they will be holding a press conference on Zoom. Uh, the URL is on screen at the moment. So that's us02web.zoom.us slash j slash 86161151099. Starts at 11 a.m. Eastern time, 4 p.m. UK time, 5 p.m. obviously in Europe. Uh, and uh, uh, quite a number of people taking part in that. Uh, I believe Eva Bartlett will be asking a question. Uh, and of course, she was on the hit list herself. So uh, do get along and watch that if you can. And of course, uh, Zelensky is not doing anything to stop this now friend of the prime minister. So presumably the prime mercenary, the lady that wanted people to go and fight supports this. Of course. Yes. Okay. Well, let's come over to you, uh, Debbie. And you've been doing some really good work having a look at where the future of the NHS goes. But before we get to that one, um, you want to remind us that it was only a couple of months ago that they were using dogs in order to uh, nudge, that's the correct term, nudge children into being vaccinated. Yeah, that's right. Wasn't that long ago, was it? Um, and there you can see that the Cornwall one where they were using therapy dogs and, and we were talking about this and we were very concerned that they were kind of incentivizing parents to take their children to these vaccination units during the summer holidays and and so then do you remember we found a document which was the uh the public account the committee of public accounts and i saw in the summer that they were going to target five to eleven year olds this autumn and it was very concerning because originally the jcvi had said that children didn't need they weren't at risk they didn't need the jab if you remember chris witty overturned it it was going to be a one-off offer but then all of a sudden we saw them sneak in this this plan to vaccinate five to eleven year olds this autumn and you know what amazingly we managed to interview dr ros buckland uh, dr sorry dr christian buckland and dr ros jones to talk about this very thing and our concerns about children and all of a sudden folks this is such good news i'm so excited five-year-olds will no longer be targeted in England. It's gone, it's gone. Unless you, unless a parent, sadly, wants their child vaccinated or their child is deemed to be 
vulnerable or living with immunosuppressed parents, there is now no need to vaccinate five to 11 year olds with COVID-19. No need whatsoever. It's been changed. It's in the green book. The green book is part of the UK HSA guidance. Um, and this is fantastic news. So I would say a huge round of applause to all of those parents who decided to use their common sense and realize that their child was a very healthy child and didn't need or didn't want that injection. But what I would say is that the cost of the vaccination centers that they were going to be setting up with all of these incentives to get kids in, that's all gone by the wayside now. So what I would say is we mustn't take our foot off the pedal because they could they could start introducing nasal vaccinations. So we need to watch out for those. And we also need to keep an eye on Scotland and Wales because this is actually just for England. But it's great news for um, all of these five to 11 year olds. So parents, if you're being pressurized by anybody, it's no longer a requirement. Well okay. done, everyone. Uh, thank you for that uh, summary, uh, Debbie. We have a little bit of a Sky uh, video here, which is talking about the issue around children and vaccines. Let's play a little bit of this and then we'll have a look at some of, of the, um, the other information that you mentioned. The question of vaccines for children has never been far away, but as schools return, the government's vaccine advisers have said no to jabs for younger teenagers. I don't think it's a confusing decision. I think it's quite clear that the risks and benefits are finely balanced, but that other wider considerations such as educational benefits need to be taken into consideration before recommending universal vaccination for well children. But Lisa, who's more vulnerable herself to COVID, wants her children vaccinated now. Dumbfounded, really. I've got no idea how they've reached that conclusion. Uh, it seems like with an outlier again in comparison with the rest of the world, France over forty percent of eligible children have been vaccinated. Millions done across them off across America. I, I would, I'd love to see the data um, in terms of educational disruption as well. I, I have. I've no idea how they have reached that conclusion. The Joint Committee on Vaccines and Immunisation's main concern was a link to incredibly rare cases of heart inflammation. 200,000 more young teenagers with heart, lung and liver conditions will now be able to get the vaccine, but it hasn't been recommended for healthy 12 to 15 year olds. The chief medical officers are now going to be looking at this issue of vaccinating children and they'll look too at the wider context. So to give you a sense of where we are with the data, in England, around one in 70 people had COVID last week. That's level with the week before. And you can see there in Scotland, the number is one in 75. That is a significant increase on the week before. And we're saying it is a high... We've come out of that uh... Uh, clip Debbie to save a little bit of time but we've got the impression this this is the mainstream media uh, really muddying the waters that really we don't know what should be happening they, they're constantly doing this rather than going and looking at the data and what the effects are I don't know whether you'd like to respond to that yeah, well, it's, it's confusion again, isn't it? You know, it's just confusion. One person says one thing, it gets overridden by someone else. But the bottom line is, is that children are at very low risk. Children of all ages do not need or want this injection. And clearly now we've got a victory for the five to 11 year olds at least, but we've got to be still aware that the older children 
the 12 and onwards are being injected and still of course so are pregnant mums so my eyes are still very much focused on this but it's 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 a really good piece of news so anybody that's feeling pressured don't feel pressured anymore okay now the key bit that you've been looking at alongside all of the turmoil around vaccines has been where the nhs is going and i'm very very sure that this is what what uh, liz truss is going to be pushing uh, this one from the BMJ entitled The Brave New NHS. We've got a gentleman we're going to bring up on screen just a second called Eric Topol. What's, what's going on here, Debbie? Where is the NHS going to? It's gone. It's gone. We don't, you know, people still refer to the NHS, the National Health Service. It, it, it's neither national, it's not health and it's not serving anybody. So it doesn't exist. And where we're going is a very scary place. This is not brave. This is stupid. This is an automated D, um, AI, digitalized, augmented reality, remote control, um, all singing, all dancing, nanotechnology, terrifying future. That's where we're going. Okay, and you've, you've highlighted this particular man, Dr. Topol, as being a key person involved in the uh... Uh, getting the whole agenda working. Uh, people can freeze the screen to have a look at the detail here that's on, on Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. Um, sorry, do you want to add, add something, Debbie? No, I was just gonna say, if you just want to flip through the slides, because actually they're quite self-explanatory, but you'll see the John Hopkins, uh, Dr. Topol, meet Dr. Topol, he's American um, and he's a cardiologist, but he's also into wireless medicine. Yes, you heard it correct. Wireless medicine. That's what we're coming on to next. So um, do go and have a look at Dr. Topol. But you just might want to whiz through the, the slides because they are quite self-explanatory. Well, we, we're going to we're going to, we'll do the two video clips first of all. Let's hear what this man has to say. We can only give a little excerpt due to the time that we've got. But I think the audience will quickly pick up that there's something really fundamental happening here. And as you say, this is not very nice. Let's have a listen to what he says. No one's ever done something like this. That is taking this new set of tools that are unquestionably having a dramatic effect on healthcare's future, and to bring all the disciplines together, all the experts, and start to plan how to use these effectively. And what can we do to really benefit patients with all these newfound capabilities? The fact that you can get a warning on your wrist through your watch that your heart rhythm isn't right, or you could get your potassium in your blood through your watch. These are some things that we wouldn't have anticipated. So the fact that you can get your genome sequence, that you can get your gut microbiome sequence, there's so many ways to understand each human being like never before. What it means is we can get remarkably more productive, that we don't do mass screenings, but we know who should be watched for whatever particular condition, that in the future we could prevent things like asthma attacks and seizures and heart attacks and strokes and far better management of things like diabetes uh, and high blood pressure. So there's all sorts of opportunities of improving our workflow and patient management, reading scans, slides, 
looking at skin lesions. These are all patterns that are better for machines to process at high throughput accurately and then have human clinical oversight. And that's where this is landing. This is a combination of doing the things best that machines do, but also that uh, clinicians can do. There isn't any question that over time, and we're talking not just immediately, but in the five to 10 year time frame, we're gonna see some immense productivity improvement. So for example, somebody was, uh, instead of going into uh, a regular hospital, they could go home and be on sensors and be continuously monitored. So uh, the key word used there, it's very faint, is productivity. He talks about productivity in relation to healthcare. And as Mike has just said to me, that's profit. Uh, Debbie, this is not just a man giving a sales pitch from anywhere to whoever's listening. This is the man already engaged to transform the NHS. Oh, completely. And guess who commissioned him to do it? Um, it was our good old friend, Jeremy Hunt back in 2018 and for anybody that's interested you know have a look at the top hole review because it's terrifying but um as i'm sure you'll agree you know he was he was uh, he was commissioned to look at the nhs in particular so yet again we can see the nhs being used as the experimental test bed globally um to to see what we're, we're the experiment <laughs> you know the nhs is the experiment and quite clearly this digitization and forward thinking of technology is going to hit us first. Thank and you, Dr. Topol. Thank you, Debbie. And the other thing that you pointed out is, of course, that uh, some people may go into the NHS and they'll get a discharge date given to them before they actually go into hospital. But the other thing you've been warning about is the intention is that people supposedly are all going to be treated at home. This is just a very short second part of Dr. Topol talking, but this gives us really the uh, the uh, second major part of this policy that's being planned. So this is something that's bigger than the NHS. It really will be transformative. That eventually, just a matter of time, that the patient will be truly the center. And clinicians will be rescued from the despair of not being able to care for patients well because they're so burdened with so much uh, keyboards and administrative and all these other things that divert them from what they really want to do, why they went into healthcare and medicine in the first place. And then we obviously want to see the productivity in these health systems. So each of these areas will eventually be revolutionized over time. Maybe it'll take 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And we'll look back now in 2018 as this thing rolled out is that we were able to really nail it of what is the biggest advantage of bringing all these tools together. So think about his comments against the background of that 214 billion pound UK health market and the insurance companies sitting in the background working with the government to use applied psychology to uh, skew the agenda so that they get the right profits out of the system. Well, it's interesting you mentioned insurance companies. Imagine what it would do to the insurance companies uh, to have access to this type of uh, biosurveillance that they're talking about here? Uh, I think my reply to that, I look to Debbie, they are going to have access, Mike, yes. because yes, this no data question. is going yes. to be shared. Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, so Debbie, you had these other slides here really just to help um, ram home the overview as to what's happening here. So we've got the top old review, preparing the healthcare workforce to deliver the digital future. 
people can find that online and have a look. And this one, um, I found this very creepy because here we, we've got, is this designed for adults or is this for children? Or have we got adults being um, addressed as children? This is nudging the, the, the layout, the pictures, the cartoon faces. What, what's this one all about? This is from the Topol Review, and, and this is literally looking at what we can expect in 2029. So who will the doctor, what will the doctor of 2029 look like? Actually, I think they'll probably be a bioengineer or a nanotechnologist or a scientist or a chemist, or maybe it's even Teresa Coffey, who knows. Um, what the paramedic, I mean, the paramedic, you're going to be in, there's going to be an autonomous ambulance. What's the role of the paramedic? What AI will they be using? This is the future, but it, it's being it's it's being rolled out now. So if people just want to freeze the screen and have a look, but the top hole review is really fascinating. It and it's biosensors, um, smart apps, you you name it, it's coming to well, it's here in the NHS now. This was back in 2018. And, so you can imagine how far forward we are now. And none of this discussed with the public all coming through the NHS assembly. And I would guarantee 99.999% of the public never heard of the NHS assembly. We do these quite quickly, but you're highlighting here the sorts of things that are coming through. So this is telemedicine, uh, virtual fracture clinics, smartphone apps, computerized cognitive behavioral therapy. So now we're using uh, psychology, but we're, we're tying it in with AI. And I notice on the right hand of people's screens, we've got speech recognition and natural language processing, NLP. We're now mixing surveillance with AI with the use of applied psychology. That's not, that's not neuro-linguistic programming, that's a different term. Well, natural, la natural language, if you, if you look at CBT in the NHS, Mike, what they are doing is using psychology on people yes. in that CBT thing. And the natural language processing is, if I've got this right, Debbie, this is picking up uh, the tones in people's voices, which might suggest that they're, they're sick. Yeah, this is using vocal biomarkers. And um, we did talk about it a couple of news ago, but people will be able to uh, or the algorithm, the, the bots will be able to pick up if you've got cancer, if you've got a fever, if you've got COVID um, by, by bots, vocal bots, voice bots. So, yeah. OK, we've got another one, medical press, um, wireless socks, monitoring the reduced rate of patient falls. You mentioned those a couple of news, UK column news is ago. Med gadget, wireless light implant without skull damage. And we've got one here, which I picked up on very quickly. This is you'd headed connect to your smartphone, seven brain computer interface companies you need to know. And the first one there is Black Rock Neurotech. Did you get a warm feeling from this one? No, I got. Uh, well, I mean, I wasn't. Sadly, we're getting to the point now where we're never surprised and we expect to see Black Rock in everything. And clearly they're in Neurotech. So I wasn't surprised, but I'm saddened. Okay, and uh, Mark, we're on. The, we're just about up for time, but I could see you nodding there. Of course, what's happened? What is happening? What has almost happened is that our NHS, as a, as a public service, has been wiped out, and it's been replaced by a, a profit-centred NHS system, which is, to me, very 
um, closely linked with Obamacare and, and that angle that we saw happening in the United States. The nudging thing that you presented earlier and subsequent to that, showing Pfizer involved, it's showing clearer than I've seen in a long time, the literal outright privatization of government. Not a little bit, not just on the fringes, but government as literally a private, opaque, corporate-based, not people-based, therefore undemocratic enterprise. I mean, it is absolutely strikingly and undeniably there now, if there were ever any doubts before. Some people call it the governmentalization of private corporations. It may be that to a point, depending on which end of the telescope you look down, but it is absolutely striking that now the new constituency is literally corporations. The people aren't even part of it except to be used as lab rats. Yes, some of those technological wizardries and you know digital things, they might be useful to have a few readings sent to you on your watch. There isn't anything necessarily wrong with some elements of it. The problem is the context, who's in control and why. They never ask the question, because we can do this, should we? And so it's just a given in the, in the belief system of, of those that are involved in this system that technology for its own sake has to be applied across everything. Everything has to be digitalized. And there's never any ethical question, should we do this? It, all they say is we can do this, therefore we will. Uh, as, if, as if technology has no inherent limits when of course it should have some inherent limits. Uh, it, Computers aren't for everything, including voting and vote counting, as we've learned. So yeah. this idea that you just digitalize and, and computerize everything for its own sake is just insanity. Yeah. yeah. Mark, thank you very much. Excellent summing up. And uh, what, what, what have we got to do? We've got to keep our finger on the pulse. We've got to keep lifting the stones and we've got to expose uh, what these people are doing. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Debbie, thank you for joining us. Um, we will have an extra time in a few minutes, but we're going to end the news today with a piece of music uh, from one of the uh, very good uh, groups that were present at Katie Joe's um, event a few weeks ago. We've said we're keen to uh, uh, put out music to try and lift people up. This particular uh, track we thought was very good and we'll end our news today with their time is running out. And uh, we'd like to say a big thank you to Paul Terry uh, for allowing us to play out this video.